Next question comes from Dave from the MBT Forum. Um, basically, what he wants to know is, is there some sort of governing body of individuated units of consciousness having just spoken about the uh, non-physical entities, um, is there some sort of governing body of these uh, entities who are responsible for the management of the general populace of the individual units of consciousness? Is there some sort of hierarchy with the individual units of consciousness? And if so, what control measures does the LCS or larger consciousness system have in place to prevent abuse of power and influence? Uh, okay, uh, the answer to, the, you know, the short answer is yes. Um, there is um, organizational needs that are met by uh, IUFCs at various levels. The reason for that is any any um, system that is organized to the extent that it can create a virtual reality for its members to uh, play in, as we do, that's a pretty complex, well-organized system. That's not a trivial thing to create a, a rule set, create a virtual reality, let it evolve according to a rule set until it evolves a... a uh, <clears throat> creature capable of being a good avatar for consciousness to um, experience and make choices with. So we have a very complex set of things going on with virtual realities. Virtual realities are built on data streams. Data streams just don't pop out of thin air. Data streams have to be calculated, has to be processed. So there's a lot going on here that requires um, function requires, you know, intelligence, requires consciousness, requires understanding, requires somebody to keep up with the, with the game. What's happening? What's the next, you know, the next Delta T? What's this data stream supposed to look like? What's the next data stream, you know, to um, many trillions of conscious things? You know, what are all the data streams? Keeping this environment consistent so that they're, there's no inconsistencies from, from experience to experience, the various entities that are experiencing here. All of that is a lot of planning and a lot of process and a lot of calculation. So one might figure that with that much complexity going on, you, you would need some structure to manage that complexity, to make sure that it runs efficiently and effectively and, and it's doing what it's supposed to do. Granted, you can set things up so that they're pretty much self-running, self but it's still, there's a lot of uncertainty in this system and you need somebody to pay attention. You need somebody at the control desk, if you like, to make sure that everything is working like it's supposed to. Because if something goes wrong somewhere and doesn't work right, then you need to fix it before that problem grows and grows and gets to be a bigger problem. So yes, there are um, there is a management staff, if you will, and I, I use that word just as a metaphor. It's it's not uh, necessarily just like we think of it. And the hierarchy is a very flat hierarchy. It's not like there's you know the the uh, 
section lead and then the branch and then the division and then the, you know, um, I don't know, a group of divisions might be under a VP and then the president. And then that's president is one of several companies within a larger combination uh, uh, of companies. And, you know, it's, that's a pretty deep hierarchy. A lot of our business hierarchies go down like 10, 11 levels or so between the person in charge at the top and the person at the bottom, you know, working in the mailroom. There's a lot of levels. This doesn't have so many levels. It's a pretty flat uh, <clears throat> organizational structure because the guy at the top can access and have connection with everything that's going on even down at the bottom, whereas in our physical uh, structures, that's not true. Nobody can really keep up with more than about 10 or 20 people, you know, so the 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 CEO only has maybe 10 uh, vice presidents or so that he has to keep up with. And each vice president only has 10 or 15 division chiefs that he has to keep up with. And each division chief only has, you know, 10 or 12 or 20 uh, branch chiefs that he has to keep up with because one person can't keep up with like 300 people doing different things. It's just impossible. But that's not true in this non-physical level. At the top, is much more able to keep up with everything at all levels than it is amongst people. We, in these avatars, are very limited compared to the larger consciousness system. Okay, so we don't have the need for depth in our in the in the uh, hierarchy that we have here in in this physical reality. So it's a flat organization. But there are those who are responsible for things, and they have their their duties, if you will, their responsibilities, and in executing those responsibilities, they're learning just as we are. They can make bad choices. They're making choices and they're, uh, um, you know, learning from the, from the quality of those choices. Now, in, in the management role, they don't have such a wide decision space of choices. They've got a much more narrow defined job than we have. We have just go out and experience and learn from it. See, that's wide. We have you know, thousands and thousands of choices that we can make in any, you know, in any one day, we make thousands of choices. They're so small little choices. We don't even know we're making choices, but we're making choices all the time. At the higher levels, the choice set is not so large. They just have to keep a certain number of functions coming along nicely or be aware of problems. Uh, for instance, um, you know, we talk about... Uh, Guides. A guide is a good example. So we talk about guides that are here to help. Okay. Now you might think them as part of the management system, and that they're trying to help an individual uh, consciousness be more successful playing their game in this virtual reality with this avatar that they've got. So this is kind of like the help desk, if you will, that uh, sends you some some information about how to do better in the game and points out things to you and maybe gives you some advice or helps answer your questions. <clears throat> this entity is a part of the larger consciousness system, just as you are. Now, we tend to think of all of these entities as isolated, separate individuals. Okay, so there's us. We're an isolated, separate individual. There's us, and then there's everything else both physical and non-physical. 
And then there's this guide. All right, it's a separate individual. There's it, and there's us, and there's everything else, and so on. But we are also just parts of this larger consciousness system. And the guide is just a part of this larger consciousness system. In fact, it's it's easier to see a guide not as a independent being, but as your personal interface to the larger consciousness system. Okay, so try to keep it simple. If we if we make too many, if we conjure up too many um, uh, variables, we just make the problem more and more complex, and we end up just confusing ourselves. So I'd like to keep it simple and say that we are parts, we are pieces, projections, if you will, thoughts, if you will, of the larger consciousness system. We're subsets. And as subsets, we have free will, get to interact with other subsets, make choices, grow up, lower entropy. Okay, that's, our, that's kind of our job. A guide is our interface to this larger consciousness system. It also is separate in the sense that it is called out as a subset, and that separate subset has to be consistent because we don't want a different guide every day. We want to talk to the same guy with the same sense of humor and you know the same whatever. We don't want it to be, a, you know, a lady one day, a guy the next, you know, a real uh, guffawing uh, jokester one day, and then a real serious one the next. That would just confuse us more. So we want consistency because that's easier for us to learn. We can use the help better if it's something like that. So we get something that suits us, and that's our interface. But this guide is also a subset, has choices to make things data to pass on if you will but it's just a piece of the larger consciousness system so tend to think of it not so much as separate things as all pieces of the same thing with different responsibilities that's a that's a a better way to to look at it it's all integrated now we can think of this biologically you know i got two hands i got a right hand and a left hand and these two hands are independent separate things because I can hold a glass with one and a pen with the other and I can write while I'm taking my glasses off and I can do different things with my different hands. They have their own function, their own things that they that they do and each one isn't exactly the same as the other or you could say an arm and a leg. They, they have very different functions. Okay. But they're all really parts of the whole thing. They're all part of a process that works together, even though the leg and a hand are very different, have their own constraints, do things work differently, look differently, um, can can grow and uh, and evolve differently. You know, I can do a lot of exercises with my legs, and my legs get real strong and and powerful, and maybe I don't do any exercises with my arms, and they stay weak and unable to do much. So these various things can can rise and fall, grow, evolve differently, but they're still all part of the same thing. So kind of look at it like that. So us, our guides, these teachers we talked about that they're sending data streams uh, to help people see bigger pictures. You know, all of these various functions are performed by the larger consciousness system 
but they're performed as pieces of the larger consciousness system, which have their own responsibilities, duties, and form and function, just like an arm and a leg has their own duties and form and function. Yeah, that's kind of as good as I can get it. You know, when we're trying to make this, I'm trying to put these concepts into physical metaphors because that's our language. You know, this, this English language that I'm speaking is a language designed to describe physical things. So we can't really think in terms of language without using physical metaphors. So realize that all of these are physical metaphors and the reality is something that we can't really describe very well from our physical language and that we're kind of struggling to do that. But you can probably get an intuitive sense of this one thing with its various projections, its various arms and legs and pieces that do things. And yes, one of the things it has to do is create this virtual reality and, and maintain it, <clears throat> implement it, compute it. And to do that, it takes some uh, effort, some focus, and some differentiated functionality. And that's what we're calling these different IUOCs that are in this hierarchy to manage the system. Yes, they have their own um, responsibilities. They have their own, they can evolve as they do these functions and their responsibilities. They are independent in the same way that my arm and my leg are independent, but they're also still part of a unified whole. So <clears throat> that's the best way I can say that. So now what are the, what are the uh, ways that the larger conscious system can make sure that these pieces are doing what they're supposed to do and are not abusing um, things. Well, how do you make sure that your arm and your leg are not doing things that you disapprove of? See, that's it's easy, right? That's a good thing. You know, they also are a part of you, and they do what they're supposed to do. If your leg does things you disapprove of, then you you fix that. You know about it. You're aware of it. So on the higher levels, you know, that's not a problem. But now on down on the IUOC level, you have all these IUCs running around interacting with free will. And they interact in all sorts of different virtual realities. And they can, they can affect things and people and things that happen. They have free will to do their job. So does your guide have free will to do his job, the decisions and within his responsibilities, there's a certain amount of free will there, the choices that he makes, how best to contact with you. Um, you know, the best form of that contact, uh, things that he should say, should he actually talk to you directly or should she uh, only work with uh, intuition, signs, uh, feelings, that kind of thing? Um, depends on you, how they choose that, but that's, that's choices that they can have, how they interact and what do they say. And how do they, what, what kind of dreams do they uh, impart into your dreaming that uh, help you learn and all sorts of choices that they, that they may have. But all these IUOCs that are just interacting, their job isn't really to run any particular function. Their job is just to be and interact and make choices and grow up. That's their job. Okay, that's what you and I are. That's our job. We're not running the the rendering engine that sends data streams to various consciousnesses. Uh, we're just out here uh, 
interacting. Well, some of those can cause trouble because some of those can take that free will and use it to aggrandize their egos, their fears. <clears throat> they can uh, do things that are not nice. And yes, they can become rogues, if you will, in the sense that they become destructive. Well, part of that is just the way the system is. You can't have free will and then require everybody to do what you want. Free will means free will. So you have to let these rogues play their part. Eventually, they'll find out being a rogue is a dead end. It doesn't work very well. It doesn't uh, take them any place that they'd like to be. It's dysfunctional. And when they find that out, then they'll start going the other, the other direction. So in one part, you just leave that alone. There is dysfunction in the system, not so much in the, in the uh, management, although there can be dysfunction in the management as well. You can have bad choices there. They do have free will, but that's more obvious. And I think the system sees that just like you'd see a dysfunction in your leg or a dysfunction in your arm. That just kind of shows very quickly because once the function is impeded, the result is, a, is obvious. But when you have these uh, individual IOUCs whose job is just to interact, and they get dysfunctional, doesn't crash the system. It just puts dysfunction in the system, which turns out to be a challenge for other people to deal with it. So they're just part of the part of the, the you know the, the mix of what's going on. And the whole idea is that they knock around in the system until they figure it out and grow up. So yes, we have dysfunction, generally not in management. Occasionally a manager, well, oh, I have seen a manager that basically uh, got very lax in his management duties to where he wasn't really performing very well and things were kind of coming unbalanced and he decided not to do anything about it, just let it ride. And that manager got replaced by somebody else. Another entity was, was put in there in that, in that position. So that does happen, but it's more the exception than the rule. And it generally uh, is caught and fixed. Now in our time, from we down here in the little avatars running around in this virtual reality, it may have taken 500 years for that to be caught and fixed. You see, we have a different perspective from the larger consciousness system. You know, that much time is maybe how much time it takes before you are certain that a fix is required. Mostly you tend to just let the system go at that, at that level of just interaction at our level. Anyway, I hope that answers the question. I kind of wandered around it a bit, but. Uh, yes, all right. If you make the structure in a, in a form that looks just like our structure, so that you have the CEO, the vice presidents, the you know division chiefs, and so on, it's not like that. It's a much flatter structure. I'm sorry, Donna, go ahead. Oh, that's okay. Please finish. Um, we can We can edit that out if you had some more to add there. I'm done. Okay. Um, we have another question on relationships and jobs from Holger. A relationship or job can be a challenge to learn and grow. At what point would it be best to let go? Okay, that's a very good question. And uh, I think I have the sense of, of what he means is that 
you know, when you're in a relationship, it's, it's, you know, it takes two to have a relationship, right? Uh, the way he's talking about it. I guess you can have a relationship with yourself, but that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about an interactive relationship with another person. And if your relationship with that other person is productive, you're both growing. You're both making good decisions, at least most of the time, and you are evolving. And it's relationship is good for uh, evolving because that's where you make a lot of personal choices that you get immediate feedback. So relationships are good theaters in which to exercise your choices and how you affect other people. You're caring, you're, the amount of love, the amount of consideration and, and stuff that you have shows a lot in that relationship. Sometimes the relationship just doesn't work. You may be giving to it as much as you know how, as much as you can figure out to do, but it's just not working between you and the other person. Say if this is a relationship between two people. The other person is not uh, learning and growing. You're learning, you're growing, and they aren't. So that probably doesn't matter too much because, you know, love is a one-way thing. Love is something you give. We talk about love being a two-way street, but that's not it. Relationship is a two-way street. Relationship goes both ways, but love is something you give away. Doesn't really matter too much what the other person does. You can love people that you don't like. You care about people that you don't really want to be around. So love is something you give. It's just you in one way. On the other hand, your set of choices and your ability to learn can be greatly enhanced or reduced based on the relationship you have. So you can have a relationship that challenges you to grow up, or you can have a relationship that makes it difficult for you to grow up. If you have one that makes it very difficult for you to give up, I mean to grow up, then you probably ought to seek other relationship. In other words, you do get to a point where it's time to let go, where a a more productive relationship is a better way to go. Now, it's not always easy to tell when you get to that point because the first question you have to ask after you realize you have a dysfunctional relationship is what part of that dysfunction is mine? If you are a significant part of that dysfunction, then dropping that relationship in favor of another is a bad idea. You should see that as a challenge to be less dysfunctional, to grow up. Use that relationship as a, as a, as a challenge to grow yourself up. If every time you get in a dysfunctional relationship, you just jump out of the relationship, you may never grow up. You see, because you're not taking responsibility for your part in the dysfunction. Therefore, you're not really challenging yourself to grow beyond that dysfunction. Now, let's say you've done that and you've done it well. You have assessed it and the dysfunctional relationship is, for a large part, not your dysfunction. Now we have the problem is, is that your ego talking? Or is that really not your dysfunction? Or you just don't see it that way because you've got 
a lot of ego. And of course, with a lot of ego, you see yourself as as fair and doing everything right. And you see the other person as unfair and, and not doing anything right. So if it's your ego talking, then we're back to what I just said before. You have responsibility for some of that dysfunction rather than leave the relationship you to grow up. But now let's say it's not your ego. <clears throat> you really are doing very well. You have learned a great deal. You are dealing from love and caring and compassion for the other person. And still, the relationship is dysfunctional. Now you can do one of two things. You can say, well, that's all right. I don't mind the dysfunction that much. I'll just hang in here because I care about the other person. And maybe just by being this nice person who cares and loves and gives, the other person will maybe grow up. Maybe they won't, but they might. It'll be more likely that they will if I can continue to give to it. See? So you might decide to do that, or you might say, well, I could actually learn more if I were in a, a different, a better situation. I'm, I'm being held back by this uh, dysfunctional relationship, and I've, I've already established that the dysfunction is not coming from me, and that's just not my ego talking. Well, then it's time to end the relationship or distance yourself from it. You know, it might be a coworker, and you may distance yourself from it by <clears throat> uh, requesting that you don't get on the same projects as the coworker. Or if it's, uh, if it's your Aunt uh, Susie, that's real dysfunctional. You may just not see Aunt Susie so much anymore, except only when you really have to. Other than that, you just don't spend a whole lot of time with people that don't form good relationships with you. If it's your significant other, then, you know, it's it's not so easy to just uh, not spend so much time with that person because you live with that person and uh, you're next to them all the time. So there is a time, though, when you are better off to let it go and find other relationships. But it's very hard to know whether you're doing that based on your ego and the fact that you have a lot of responsibility for that dysfunction, and now you're just skipping out and going to connect up and be dysfunctional in another relationship. You can carry your dysfunction through four or five relationships and not learn much because you always blame everything on someone else other than yourself which is a typical thing that ego does. <clears throat> so in other words, it's a hard question. It's a very difficult question to know when you get to that point. But the steps ought to be like this. There's dysfunction. Can I live with it and just keep giving to it? And if I give to it, will there be some probability that it will heal it? Secondly, is the dysfunction mine? How much of this dysfunction am I creating? That's a tough one because your ego will always say, oh, no, it's not yours. You're fine. It's another person's creating all the problems. But you have to get past that. You have to become authentic there and uh, let that ego intellect uh, sit down and be quiet while you actually assess what's going on. And then there's always communication. I'm sure the other person in this relationship would be happy to tell you your dysfunction and your responsibility for the dysfunction in a relationship. Well, listen. Don't just defend yourself. Listen. 
and then assess. So that's the third. And, and then in the final case, where you have come to a non-egoic decision that this is not working for you and that you'd be better off elsewhere, probably true that the other person would be better off elsewhere too, because what's dysfunctional for one is dysfunctional for the other as well. Then it's time to move on. Okay, now there's more complications. What happens if we're talking about significant others and there's children involved and the children are very small and you know the separation will cause hundreds of miles of distance between you know at least one of the parents and their children. What does that do to the children? And how much entropy are you creating in that sense? So you have to look at the whole picture and decide what's best for system in the long term. Okay. Now it could be that uh, uh, in the long term it's better for the children to get out of a dysfunctional situation, particularly if the parents fighting and, and screaming all the time, right? That's not good for children. It'd be better that they only had one parent that wasn't screaming all the time. And it may be not. It may be the case that uh, that's not the you know, it's not the way it is at all. So every case is different, and each person has to decide where they fit in it. But yes, you do get to a point where moving on is a better decision. But you have to consider everybody, all the entropy that you create or that you lower, and consider it in the long term and not just do what feels good or do what your ego thinks. And if you've done due diligence, then make your choice. Go forward with it and learn from it. There's always uncertainty. The next question comes from Sydney from the MBT forum. The question is on grief. What is the best way to deal with grief? How can it help one grow when the pain from it can be so constant and enveloping? It's not the uncertainty that concerns me. It's dealing with the pain of loss despite knowing that the person who left is doing their own work and moving on. Missing someone hurts. Yes. Um, grief is a, it's a normal, it's a acceptable, it's even uh, uh, something that many people have to go through. When they have a major loss, they have a little period where they have to adapt, accommodate themselves, um, accept that loss. And that's really what we call the grieving period, where, you, where it takes you a little bit of time to accept the loss. All right, now things are different, and I've got to go on with this different thing, which isn't nearly as comfortable as the old thing before it changed. I'd like it to be the way it was, but it isn't anymore, and I have to deal with that. All right, that takes a little bit of time. Most people don't deal with that, say, in two or three seconds. They go, okay, it's different now. All right, got it. Let's go on. It's not that simple for most of us. Most of us have to struggle a little bit in the acceptance of major change. And that's true whether it's just major change because you got fired from one job and have to get another, or whether it's someone dies. You know. You go through a similar process. You have to deal with, what am I going to do now? This is different. How am I going to deal with this? 
Okay, so we don't call it grief when it's, you get fired from your job. We call that when somebody dies, but it's the same process that you are going through. <clears throat> now, a certain amount of time is, is reasonable to deal with the change and accept it and move on. But what happens sometimes is that people get focused on that loss. Basically, it comes back to them in the form of self-pity. Oh, no, I don't have this. How can I change? How can I go on? Woe is me. Life isn't the same. I've got all these difficult things to do. Before it was easy. Before I had this pattern, I was in this nice thing, and everything just worked really good, and now... You know, I'm going to have to get in and start things over. I don't feel like starting things over. I like things the way they were. I want, you notice all these sentences start with I. You know, I want this. I don't feel good. I want it to change. You know, I didn't want it to change. I don't want to have to go do new things. It's all about self. All of this is self-referential. It is basically self-pity. And it is not constructive. Now, if you indulge in a little bit of that during the short time that it takes you to accept what has happened and move on, then I guess that's normal enough. But if you get if you get attached to the the horror of it all, if you get attached to the unfortunate, to the sadness, to the hurt, to the dislocation and disruption of your life, if that becomes large in your mind to where what you're focusing on is that disruption, that problem, that hurt, then you can get stuck there. You can get in a self-referential loop of self All you do is feel the pain and feel the pain and weeks go by and it's still this terrible, painful thing. That's being trapped in a, it's like an endless, endless loop of focusing on the problem, on the negativity, on the, the major change that took place in your life and not going on with your life, not finding a solution. So say it's because you lost your job. Now, if you lose your job, that's traumatic, and it may take you a few days to get over that, but eventually you have to face that fact and go out and find another one. If it's about somebody that dies, you just can't go out and find another one. You know, there is there is no other Uncle Fred. That's your Uncle Fred. That's your, you know, or that's your husband or that's your wife or that was your child. You can't just go out and replace them like you could maybe a job. But you still have to accept that is the way it is. Deal with that. Accept it and go on. The other person who has died is doing that. They've gone on. They've accepted it and are moving on with the next step. You need to do the same. And continually uh, going around that circle of revisiting your pain and revisiting uh, your, your self-pity with, oh, no, oh, no, it hurts so much, and you just get stuck in that misery spot, and that is just dysfunctional. And you just need to grab hold of yourself and get out of it. Some people find that very difficult, but they need to just start building their new life. Because after a major change, that's what I mean. What comes next is what the new life. You just start building it. That doesn't mean that you forget the person. 
they'll never forget that person. You may never forget that old job you had, but it's there in a pleasant memory. You remember the good things and the good times and all the positive things about it and remember it with a smile, not with a tear. Remember it fondly, not sadly. So you don't, you don't focus on what you no longer have that you want. That's an ego focusing on its loss that you have to deal with and let go. So grief is good in a short period of time because it takes humans a certain amount of time to acclimate to major change, but it's dysfunctional if it goes on too long. The next question comes from Jan from the MBT Forum. Her question has to do with feelings of energetic sensations, um, such as when you're energy healing. You've talked before uh, describing chakras as being metaphors and energy as being a metaphor. Um, what is the link between the raw data and the feelings of energetic sensations? Okay, um, a lot of people get energetic sensations. And what they mean by that is, um, let's say if you heal people and you heal them with your hands. So you put your hands on their body someplace and then you, you, your mind is interpreting this as the energy is flowing from you out of your hands into them and healing them. Okay, that's a, it's a hands-on healing technique. It's very old and has been used for thousands of years. You can feel that in your hands because your hands get really warm. And the, the, the subject, the patient, can feel that in their body because they can feel the energy surging into their, their body right there where your hands are. And it's a, it's a very physical manifestation of energy. And that's the energy sensation kind of things they're talking about. These energy sensations are several things. One is they are a tool. They're a signpost. There's a, they're, a, they're a thing that lets you know that what you're doing is, is working. You're doing it. Okay? It's, it's uh, like the, the sign that says New York, you know, uh, 325 miles. You like that sign because it lets you know you're on the right road and, you, you know, what you're trying to do is get to New York that you're on the right road and you're headed in the right direction. That's what I mean by it. it's a sign that, that, uh, that encourages you to go on. Okay, so in that way, it's a tool. That sign is a tool to let travelers know that they're going in the right direction. So you want to heal. You're using your intent. The active ingredient is really your intent. Your intent is doing the healing. It's not your energy that's going through your hands, that's going into their body, that's actually fixing things. That's your tool. That's your metaphor. It's your intent to heal that is doing that. Now, because we tend to think of action at a distance as being spooky, as Einstein called it, spooky action at a distance, it doesn't feel too natural to us. So if we just heal with our mind and we don't touch, we don't even see the person or whatever, a lot of people just can't do that. They just, it, there's a disconnect. It doesn't feel right to them. So for them, they want that 
touch. They have to be connected because how else could the energy get there, right? Energy has to travel and it doesn't travel through air. It's got to travel through your body and then it has to be on their body. So those people use this hands-on technique as a tool because that connects with them. If they use the hands-on approach, it just feels right. And it feels right because they have a lot of beliefs that don't conflict with this. Whereas if they were just going to do it from a distance, you know, of uh, 20,000 miles away, you know, somewhere uh, around the, around on the other side of the earth, maybe not 20,000 miles away, but you know, we got something like that, 5,000 miles, 10,000 miles away. Anyway, they'd feel that that wouldn't work. It's too far. You know, their energy would all dissipate before it got that far. It's because they have the sense of energy dissipating as it goes out because that's our physical world. Like the light gets dimmer the farther away you get from it. So if you have these beliefs, then that kind of spooky action at a distance just doesn't work for you because you can't believe it. You can't trust it. It doesn't work that way. So now you have to touch and you have to do hands-on. And when you do, a sign that you're actually accomplishing, that you're doing the healing, is the warmth, is the temperature in your hand because, you know, energy leaves heat, right? You get an electric shock or something. You, know, you can feel that tingle. You can feel that heat. So heat and energy are kind of connected to each other. These are metaphors. Now, I think what this question is, is why do we actually feel this physical stuff? And we do. And not only do I feel that my hands get hot when the energies are flowing, but the other person, without me pro, you know, prompting them at all, will say, yeah, I felt all this heat you know, on, on my back right there where you were touching me and I could feel like electricity went into me and so on. All of these are metaphors because it also helps the patient. If the patient feels the, you know, feels the energy working, then the patient will do better. It's just like the placebo effect. When you take that magic pill that's going to heal you, you feel better because you've done something. We're in this, this mind state where nothing can happen if you don't do something. You don't feel something, then nothing really happened. So this is all part of the metaphors between the patient and the and the uh, healer. So why does the patient feel it, even if uh, there was nothing there? Because the mind of the healer and the mind of the person being healed, they're all connected. All of our minds are connected on this network. I'm healing you. I'm pulling, pouring all this energy into you. And then the other person connects with that, and they say, yes. I feel it. It feels good. I feel the heat. I feel like an electrical shock. I can feel myself being healed. Well, that's great because now they know that they've been healed. They felt it. They'll get better quicker if they say, eh, I didn't feel anything. Those are the ones that don't get much better or at least not as quickly because they're not putting their own sense of, of uh, you know, it being healed they're not really uh, contributing to the healing themselves. The patient isn't contributing so much to the healing. Okay, that's the way it is if uh, you're healing somebody and they have no idea you're doing it. You've just drawn a random draw of Joe, Joe Schmo who has something or other, and you and your group you know, work the healing, but Joe has no idea his name's even in that, in that uh, group to be worked on. So you work on him, and he doesn't know. Well, you can still affect Joe. But if you had Joe working for you too, if he was working on it at the same time, 
his healing would be, you know, would come more quickly. It would be better if he works on it. After all, there's nobody more uh, connected to Joe than Joe himself. So there's nobody who can modify his physical state any more than he can. Or he's the he's got the most leverage, just put it that way, of anybody. So that's what's going on. There's a connection there. And because it works and because everybody feels it, then it's it's real. It's a real physical thing. And you can take a thermometer and stick it on that person's hands, and sure enough, their hands do get warm. Not that they just imagine they're warm. They actually do get warm. And probably so does Joe's back. You know, gets warm too, right where the hands are touching, partly because the hands are warm and partly because Joe's in sync with this whole process. So that's what's going on. It's a it's a metaphor. It's some people it re, it's required. Now here's another one that uh, people get sensations when people try to uh, meditate. Um, and they let's say mostly they're doing this when they try to go out of body and they lie down and they want to do this. I'm asleep but I'm still awake thing. So they get right on that edge of sleep. They're still aware but they lose contact with the physical reality, which means, you know, technically they're out of body because they're no longer sensing the physical reality. They kind of drop that. And when they drop that, they suddenly realize that they're no longer just the way they were. When they were, you know, in their body, right? In means they get all the physical data. They're there. They're in their body. Or they have... Let that go. They're not in. They're not connected any longer to that physical data set. Well, how do they interpret that? They interpret that as paralysis. Why? Because when they are disconnected from the physical, they're not connected to the physical. They can't move things. They can't, uh, you know, do whatever. They're just lying there as mind disconnected from the physical and once they realize they're disconnected from the physical, they interpret that as I'm paralyzed because I can't affect the physical because I'm disconnected from it. And that's called sleep paralysis. And then they panic and, uh, you know, get a little hysterical. And eventually they all wake up in a sweat and, uh, you know, breathing heavily. And wow, that was a close call. Or, you know, they get to a point where they're disconnected from the physical and they start feeling vibrations. They're, it's almost like their 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 quote unquote body is elastic, and it's it's you know it's bumping and waving, uh, and uh, maybe they feel electrical shocks. They hear sounds. Sometimes they see things. Usually something scary, you know, a three-headed demon going or something uh, in front of them, and uh, it scares them, and they go away. Okay, well, these signs, this pulsating this vibrating and things people get it. These are signs. It's sign that you are disconnected from the physical. So is your sleep paralysis. The noises you hear and the and the whatever, that is mostly self-created in that when you don't hear anything because you're disconnected from the physical, you kind of want to hear something. You're straying. Well, uh, you know, I don't hear anything. You you work hard. Well, where's the? I always hear the refrigerator running. You know, I always hear the traffic outside. I always hear dog. My neighbor's dog never stops barking. And you want to hear things, 
And if you don't hear anything, you create, you imagine things that you hear. You imagine people breaking into your house and you can hear, hear the footsteps running across the roof as these burglars are wanting to whatever. And then, oh, no, you're paralyzed. You can't move. And you see, you create all this drama and all these problems because you're afraid. So a lot of those kinds of physical, physical things aren't really physical things at all. They're things in your, in your mind. But they're also, I bring it up here because they're also signs. They're signposts. Instead of saying, oh, look. I'm just lying here as consciousness. I'm not really connected to my body. Instead of saying, oh, my God, I'm paralyzed. You should say, well, isn't that neat? Oh, what am I going to do now? I'm consciousness, and I finally let my body go. How about I go do this, or remote view, or heal, or just go out there and make contact, or whatever, you know? But instead, people panic because it's something they're not used to. And you'll notice that the people who have all these things are the people who are in the beginning stage of stuff. It's like they, this is the first time they've really physical. They've disconnected from the physical. Their consciousness is awake. Breaks them out. Although they've just spent the last two years trying to do this. And then when they finally succeed, it completely ends them and they run away. You know, that's just the way I know. I see some people smiling. They've probably been here and and done that, but that's the way it works. So when they finally succeed at what they've been trying to do, it scares them to death. And uh, once you get scared, then your mind will create all kinds of things. Now, you do get a certain pulsation state that is a real state. It's a physical state, too. And if you have sensitive equipment on you, it'll also pulse. You see that little needle on the meter going like this, you know, just pulsing back and forth because your body resistance will pulse because body resistance change with relaxation your EEG will pulse you have other things going on but that's because your whole body is instead of being scattered through the spectrum of EEG energy frequencies almost all of your EEG spectrum now is in one place and that's in the theta state and around that four hertz and you'll notice that when you feel that that vibrating, it's almost always about four hertz. How do you know that? You count real fast. One, two, three, four. If you've if you got from one to four in about one second, that's four hertz. That's four cycles a second. And that's about the way that vibration goes. And that's a sensitivity to those electrochemical changes that are now all kind of syncing up together in that four hertz when normally they're just scattered all through the spectrum you got a little four hertz you got a little 10 hertz you got some 40 hertz you got some 20 you know you got some 30s you got some other high stuff too up in the 60s and so on all the stuff is going on and the spectrum is changing and that's like in a normal person when it all settles down to one narrow frequency band you can sense that and that's the vibration that you get But as soon as you get fearful of that vibration, it starts to get wild and crazy, and now it's scaring you, and the more it scares you, the bigger it gets, and, you know, it's a downward spiral that you get with fear. Pretty soon it's an electrical current, you know, that you can hardly stand, and you create a lot of data there in your imagination out of your fear. So these these kinds of things they are real physical things like i say the temperature on a person's palms the palms will get warm when you meditate your whole body gets warm your body temperature goes up 
When you meditate, your the um, capillaries in your body dilate. You get more blood flow to the skin. The skin will get a little redder, and you will feel a lot warmer. That's just a biochemical reaction to deep relaxation. So you may get a sensation of being warm. Sometimes when people are trying to first learn and they don't want to break their concentration and they're focused on this thing, and what happens? They get an itch. Oh, just a burning itch right here in the middle of my forehead between my eyes or right here on my nose, and I can't think about anything else but this this terrible itch. Well, that's just that's just you creating problems. But partially, when you get into this state, your biochemistry changes and your skin does dry out a little bit while you're doing it. And that makes that itch a little noticeable. And then when that notice gets there, you just ramp it up to where it's unbearable. It's like you go to the dentist's office and sit in a chair. And if he touches you with a feather, you jump because it would be so painful because you're geared up for it. Well, that's what happens with that itch. You just let that itch go and don't put your focus on it. It's just a little itch and it goes away and you can forget about it. But as soon as you go, oh, no, an itch, that's going to bother me. Oh, I can't think about anything but that itch. You know, I got to I got to move. I don't want to move because then I'll bring me back to the physical and you get into this problem. The problem will probably just get worse. Just have to learn to say, okay, itch, I'll live with it. Do your Do your worst itch and I'm just going to ignore you. And then it just goes away. So we can create these physical things. Some of them are physiological, some of them are mental. Um, all of them feel totally real. Hands do get hotter. Now, if you're a healer and you can create a lot of energy, you can focus a lot of energy, well, you can do things like change the temperature of your body. So you can make your hands very hot. So part of your metaphor for healing, your hands may get very warm. That doesn't necessarily mean that there's energy pouring out of your hands. It means that that's your metaphor, so it feels like that. And if it didn't feel like that, you wouldn't feel like you were doing it right. So it's part of the process of doing it right. And I don't want to wreck people, because if people heal that way, they can get very good and powerful at it. If you take that away and said, oh, that doesn't mean anything. You don't need the hands or whatever. You're just That's just a tool you're using. They have to use it. If they don't use that, they can't do it, and if you ruin the tool for them by telling them it's just uh, you know something they're making up in their mind, you may ruin their ability to heal just because you've gotten in the road of a, of a tool system that now you've kind of invalidated for them, and it gets in their way. But usually that doesn't happen. Mostly they just brush you off and say, well, they don't understand. I am healing, and energy does go through my hands because I feel it. And you know I'm just as glad if they do that because it doesn't get in their game. That's um, how that is. So those, artif- those artifacts that you sense are real in the sense that you do feel them, and often they can be measured. But that doesn't mean necessarily that, that, that that's what's going on. The only active ingredient here is intent and consciousness. That's what changes things. But we need our tools to help us do that focus.